Before I turn to the text, I, I want to share a few lines from Donald McKinnon, who was, as many of you know, a major influence on Rowan Williams. It, it, this is a little essay on the work of Scott Holland. I just want to read a few lines from it. He's McKinnon is discussing the risk of falling into trivial optimism or veering away from that into a kind of nihilistic despair. And he says, he's making the point in this paragraph that Christian preaching should steer between those ditches. It should avoid trivial optimism. It should avoid nihilistic despair. And it can only do that, he says, by attending to the cross and the God of the cross. So here, he, here are his words. Our greatest teachers are those who remind us that the law of God's being is pity and meekness. The law of God's being is pity and meekness, although a pity and meekness revealed in the cross. It is for the Christian preacher to stand himself in the shadow of the cross, to catch there the music of God's promise and joy, of his abiding purpose of love there fulfilled. To stand in the shadow and to catch the music. And so, I'll let that stand for itself, let speak for itself. And, and turn to the text. I want to begin with the gospel. For those who are not following the lectionary, the gospel for this coming Sunday in the RCL is Mark 12, 38 to 44, which is pretty well known as the story of the widow and her two mites, the two coins that she throws into the treasury. I'll read it quickly. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I'm not going to say much about the ways in which this text has been misread or even exploited to talk about offerings. I do want to point out that it's pretty clear that Jesus does not mean this in any straightforward sense as praise of her. I don't, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to take this again in any simplistic sense as an encouragement to follow her lead. I think we are being, our attention is being drawn to her for a reason, and that she, I do think Jesus is saying she's enacting something deeply true. I'll come back to that in a moment. But at least on the face of it, Jesus is drawing attention to the ways in which this woman is being exploited, or at least people are trying to exploit her. There's a line in this translation, it shows up in a few others as well, similarly, that Jesus sets down opposite the treasury, right? So this is maybe even more pronounced in, in Luke, but even in Mark, it's pretty clear that Jesus is setting himself against what's happening here against these scribes who are dressed to impress, 
who are seeking out places of honor and saying long prayers, putting on a show of piety in order to hide the fact that they're exploiting widows, they're exploiting the poor. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation, right? And it's striking kind of judgment, not just that they will be condemned, but they will receive the greater condemnation, right? That, that, that this is this is a special kind of judgment reserved for people who play up appearances to hide the fact that they're taking advantage of the weak and taking advantage of the poor and widows in particular. And then having said that, having made that judgment and given that warning, Jesus sets down opposite the treasury, puts himself in opposition to that system and its exploitation and notices. He notices the crowd putting money into the treasury. He sees that rich people put in large sums. He sees this poor widow. And this is very clear in Luke's gospel. Jesus lifts up his eyes and sees, right? He, he notices her and calls his disciples to notice her with him, right? See what this woman is doing. And so I want to say, at least at the, at the first level of significance, this is Jesus drawing attention to the exploitation. But at a deeper level, he's also drawing attention to the ways in, ways in which this, the truthfulness of this woman's act cannot be overwhelmed by the fact that she's being exploited or that these systems are trying to exploit her and that there are men, these scribes that Jesus has identified, who are trying to use those systems of exploitation to, to benefit and to make a name for themselves, to, to accumulate wealth and power. And that, I think, is, is crucial. And for me, it's, it's a truth that kind of resonates through all of the texts this week. And I think it's the truth of the cross. We have to say that the cross is not only a miscarriage of justice, but the, the the most egregious miscarriage possible. The truth himself, justice himself, is betrayed and falsely condemned and executed. And Jesus' death is wrong. It's a fundamental injustice. And yet, even while he has Jesus is being betrayed and falsely accused and killed even though he is innocent, Jesus is enacting something that's true of God. Right? So not, not the cross itself, certainly not the condemnation to death. That's not where justice is. Right? Justice is not in the fact that Jesus dies. Jesus' death is unjust. The justice of God is in Jesus' self-offering and his giving and his faithfulness to God and faithfulness to us in spite of those injustices, in spite of the ways in which he is being exploited and abused and condemned falsely. Jesus remains true to the character of God, remains true to what it means to be human, remains loving, remains faithful, remains gracious, in spite of all of those systemic injustices, in spite of all that is wrong in that moment, the, the, the presentation of evil in the structures of his world. And that is what this widow is enacting in her own way. Like she is participating in a system that is exploiting her, and yet she's participating in a way that enacts the infinite justice of God, that enacts the generosity of God, that, that cannot be 
exploited. Even though the systems are there to take advantage of her, the fact is the justice of God is deeper even than those injustices that are that are being levied against her. I think something very much like that is happening with the widow in the Old Testament reading, the reading from 1 Kings 17, which is the story of Elijah coming to Zarephath where he sees a widow who's gathering sticks and he asks for water. She brings it to him, or she's going to bring it. And he asks also for bread. And she says, I'm sorry, I don't have anything prepared. I haven't, I, I don't have anything baked. I'm down to my last bit of meal and my last bit of oil. I'm gathering this, these sticks so that I can go home, start a fire, make this last cake and have the last supper with my son before we die. And this is not, almost certainly, this is not hyperbole on her part. This is not drama. She She's come to terms with the fact that she is going to die, that she's going to starve to death. And this is, this is a kind of last supper, a last ditch resistance against the inevitability of death. And Elijah says, don't be afraid. Go and do exactly what you've said with this exception. First, make a cake for me. And then you can make something for yourself and your son. And this is the word of the Lord to you. The jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And she goes and does it. Now this text, like the the text of the woman and her two mites, has been exploited, no doubt. It's been exploited by preachers in my tradition, Pentecostal tradition, for sure, in all kinds of ways. I don't want to dismiss any of that. It's a very real problem and needs to be needs to be named as a problem and needs to be uprooted from our practice. But I, I, for now, I want to keep attention on the ways in which she is enacting something true. And, and what she's enacting is not honoring the prophet. What she's enacting is not proving her, her faith in any kind of cliched sense. What she's enacting, I think, is the same truth that Jesus enacts in the cross and that that widow enacted in giving her last coins. And that is the recognition that God does not need anything from us in order to be everything we need. God does not need our help to be the God we need God to be. And that we actually help God best when we have nothing to give but the recognition that we have nothing to give. And so notice what, what at least on one reading, what's happening here is Elijah is asking her to take what little she has left, the cake, the, the meal and the oil, and use it on him so she will come down to nothing. She will come all the way down to, to an absolute end. And in that find that God's generosity is just beginning. It's, it's a way of Elijah, it's the way of the Lord, showing her that nothing is what she needs. That, in fact, nothing is all that she needs. And by being brought to that place, she's being brought into contact with, she's being opened up to the infinite generosity of God, the endless gift that is God's life, the God who creates the God who creates from nothing. I think this is this is the truth of Philippians 2. This is why Jesus does not who doesn't exploit his relationship with the Father but takes on human being. That's not a humiliation for him to be, for God to become human. He takes on the form of a slave and that's not a humiliation 
Because the life of a slave, the life of someone who has nothing, is the only human life capacious enough, broad enough, to house the breadth of God. That the wealthy and the powerful, the wise, the sage, the knowledgeable, their lives are too narrow. Because the more things we have in our life, the more crowded our lives are with things, the less room there is for God to be all. And so, and it, it, let me just interrupt myself to say, I mean, that that can sound really cliched. It can sound uh, like bad poetry, but I, I don't mean it in, in an abstract sense, and I don't mean it in a cliched sense. I mean, there there is, I think we see in the lives of the saints, in the lives of the prophets, in the witness of the martyrs, in, of course, ultimately the life of Jesus and the life of his mother, we see this truth that those who are most open to God, those who are most at peace with being who they are, are those who no longer have the illusion of being able to save themselves or to bring anything into the relationship with God that will somehow save God from failure. And this is, I mean, Mary says, what do I have? I mean, I'm, I'm a lowly servant. I've, I have not known a man. How can I possibly bear a child? Well, precisely because you are, you're, you're bringing nothing to this. You, you are exactly what God needs. I mean, Israel is elect precisely because Israel has none of the powers of the superpowers of the ancient world, right? It's not Babylon, not Nineveh, not Egypt. And and so on and so on. I think this is this is a truth that's right at the heart of what it means to be Israel. It's a truth that Mary lives. It's the truth that the prophets live. And it's the truth that Jesus lives. And these two widows in the text this week live it as well, right? They live it as well. And of, and and it's it's not an accident that that they're widows, right? That they're they've lost, and they've lost. And, and of course, in in these ancient societies the reason these widows are starving is that they've lost the source. They've lost the man in their life who will care for them, right? In track one for this week, it's the story of Ruth. And it's very much the same story there. Naomi and Ruth have lost their sources. They've lost the men who are going to provide for them. And so it's about finding that and finding that in Boaz. And here it's, it's finding that in the prophet in, in first Kings we don't know how the woman in the gospel text found it. But ultimately, of course, all of that is Jesus is, is the source. The psalm, I won't say a lot about it, but just, just a couple of words. Psalm 146 in track two warns, the psalmist warns against us putting our trust in rulers or any child of earth, for there is no help in them. In other words, those who are most powerful are the ones who are least able to help us. The more power they have, the, the less use they are in terms of what we most need and, and what, what matters at the end of the day. And, and so he says, happy are those who have the God of Jacob for their help, the God who elects the unfit, the God who seeks out, not the chosen, not the eldest, not the powerful, but as Paul will say, the God who seeks out the, the misfits, the liars, the the criminals, the God who is actively seeking the weak and the foolish 
in order to confound the wise and powerful. That God is the God who is our help because he is the God who made heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them. And he keeps his promise forever. And this, I think, is again, right to the point. The God of Jacob is the God who creates from nothing. The God who has no need. The God who whose work in our life cannot be supplemented or added to by what we bring. Right, God's goodness in my life is not dependent upon how much goodness I'm willing to bring to God. I'm, I'm no help to God. And precisely in knowing that, I do become a help to God in the only way that matters. Right. That again, back to the psalm. I can't put the earlier passage in the psalm. I can't put my trust in rulers because the more powerful they are, the less useful they are for what God is doing in the world. Only the life of a slave is capacious enough to house the breadth of God. That, I think, is the witness of the cross, and that is the promise of the gospel. Now, here's, here's how this applies to, to everyone. The truth is we are all powerless. We are all empty, whether we know it or not. This is why, to go back to Mary's song, she says that God, God feeds the hungry, as this psalm does as well, gives food to, the, to those who are hungry, but sends the rich away empty. He sends the rich away empty so they can learn that their riches are empty. Right? He sends them away to learn their own emptiness and to learn the vanity of riches, to learn that all of these powers mean nothing. And then to come to terms with their own poverty, the poverty of spirit, and to see that that poverty is blessed. Now, I, I don't want to romanticize poverty here. I don't want to romanticize lack. I don't want this, again, I don't want this to be bad poetry. I, I, want, I want to say, and I think what the text is wanting to say, is that there is a poverty of spirit, a recognition that I cannot give myself anything that I actually need. I'm not the source of what matters in my life. And I, I need to make wise choices. I need to, quote unquote, steward what I've been given. I, I don't need to be foolish. And there's nothing romantic or sexy about starvation or exploitation. Poverty is not a good in and of itself. But there is a kind of good in the recognition that I am poor in spirit. I cannot bring to God anything that's going to alter the way God is God for me, that I cannot exploit God, and that there is in me, in the depths of my spirit, a kind of poverty, a need, that if I will own it, if I will accept it, if I will face it, puts me in touch with the God who cannot be exploited, and so saves me from all of these other exploitations, all of these other rulers and powers that are seeking to exploit me. And that brings me to the final text that I want to comment on, the epistle, again, from track two, Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. It's unbelievably dense. I'm not going to say too much about it, but in light of the theme I've been, I've been tracking through these texts, just a couple of words. We're told that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a copy of, a true sanctuary, of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he didn't do that in order to offer himself again and again, as the high priest did in Israel's sacrificial systems. 
but he offered himself once for all. He appeared in the presence of God once for all to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then we're, we're told that he will appear again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, who are waiting for him eagerly. Now, what I want to draw attention to here is the way this is being described is Christ is entering into the presence of God. He is here priest and sacrifice and altar. He's entering into the heavens, presenting himself to the Father as the sacrifice that removes sin. But the, but the deeper truth that Hebrews knows, and of course Scripture knows, is that Christ is the sanctuary into which he enters. He is heaven. He is the presence of God. He's not only priest and sacrifice and altar, he is also the God who receives what he gives. He, he Again, he is the sanctuary, not made by human hands. He is the presence of God himself. So what's happening in Hebrews 9 then, and again, Hebrews knows this and draws attention to it at various places in, in its argument. Jesus is, in a very real way, coming to himself, and coming to himself is saving us. Now, of course, that line, coming to himself, reminds us of the prodigal son story, right? The prodigal wastes everything he has. He comes down to nothing. And when he comes down to nothing in the far country, he comes to himself, right? When he's reduced to nothing, when everything is stripped away from him, what he runs up against is the foundational truth of his being, that his being is a being that depends upon the being of God, that his existence depends not on itself. In other words, he's, he's not self-sustaining. He cannot give life to himself. He cannot supply what he actually needs. He comes to nothing, and then he comes to himself. And precisely in that moment, he's reoriented to the Father, still in confusion, still doesn't understand what that's going to mean, thinking of himself only as a slave, and not yet thinking of himself as a slave in the sense that Christ is a slave. But he comes to the Father and, and begins that process of reconciliation that's interrupted. We don't know how the story quite ends, but at least the the reconciliation is initiated as he comes to the Father as an embraced and is embraced and a party begins. And so I, I think this is a way of thinking about what atonement is in Jesus. Jesus is coming to himself, but because he's God, he's not coming to nothingness in and of himself, but he's coming to the nothingness of human being that he has taken on as his own and bringing that nothingness of the creature into the infinity, the everythingness, the, the endless generosity of the divine nature, and he's drawing them into perfect communion. He's coming to himself, and in that process, he's bringing our poverty, our emptiness, into communion with the fullness of God, into the fullness of of God's riches, quote-unquote. And that brings about our atonement, our oneing with God and with ourselves and with each other and with creation. And so I, I don't have 
a kind of uh, fancy end here. I mean, this is, like I said, it's unpolished off the cuff. But I do think this is a theme that kind of runs through all of these texts. And it's a theme that fits with the call that we have every week, which is the call to preach the gospel in the shadow of the cross, hearing the music of God's joy, as Donald McKinnon put it. So last word, and then I'll say a prayer and we'll be done. I'm struck by the fact that he he said to do this once, but he, that we're also told that he will appear a second time. So this this Jesus who's come to himself in a way that saves the prodigal and the elder son and the father and us, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I, I think, you know, it's it's easy to just to read this and think, oh, this is just a, a reference to the second coming. And of course, I think that there's a way in which that's true. But I don't I don't I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss the ways in which the the the, the second time the there's a is not so much a well, let me let me come at it like this. So Christoph Blumhart, who he and his father are Lutheran, you you probably heard me reference them before, uh, German Lutheran pastors who are are well known for a revival that broke out in in their parish and healing homes and preaching about. Jo- I mean, they're they're fascinating story. You should definitely read this story if you if you get the chance. But Christoph Blumhart argues that every Christian has to have two conversions from the world to God and from God back to the world. That there's a way in which you have to come to Jesus and then you have to come to Jesus in a way that makes you like Jesus and you go with Jesus back out into the world. You're sent. In my Surprise by God book, I, I, I used a couple of images, an image of the disciples coming to Jesus and then another image of the disciples being sent out from Jesus and uh, from a David Jones drawing, that, that that to illustrate this point of these conversions, which don't happen just you know once in our lives, but are constantly happening. We're always coming to Jesus and going on. In fact, that's what's happening in every every liturgical service, right? Every Sunday, we're being gathered and then scattered. We're being called in and we're being sent out. And I think one of the ways of hearing this line about the second appearing, the second coming of Jesus, is not about the end of history or the eschaton only, although of course that's true, but about the ways in which when we come to ourselves the way Jesus came to himself, we have this appearing of Jesus. Jesus shows up, and he shows up in the person who's in the room with us, in the person who comes into our mind suddenly from nowhere, and we feel ourselves moved to prayer, right? That we're encountering Jesus at every turn whenever we're coming into contact with with ourselves. And that is the work of the Spirit, right? That's the work of sanctification. That's the work of faithfulness, of being the kind of people who are in touch with our own nothingness, in touch with our own lack, in, in touch with the fact that we are poor in spirit, knowing that if we can stay in touch with that, we can be opened up to the God who is everything we need and more, 
And when we're deeply, truly convinced of that, then Christ will be appearing to us at every turn. So let me pray for you. God, thank you for the gift of these texts. Thank you for these men and women who are doing the work of serving these texts, washing the feet of these texts, letting these texts wash their feet so that your people can hear what it is that you're saying. God, I pray that whoever's hearing this, they will they will hear in the discussion we've just had what it is you want them to hear so that they will know what to say to those who need to hear it on Sunday or between now and Sunday or after Sunday, whenever the time is right. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you not only speak to us and about us, but you invite us to speak up too. Thank you for this gift and all the gifts that you give us. Amen.